Hello, everybody. I'm Helena Cobbin. I'm the president of Just World Educational, a small educational nonprofit located in Washington, D.C., in the traditional lands of the Nacochtanks and Piscataways. Today's Twitter space is part of a project we're running throughout June to educate new generations of Americans about the horrors of nuclear war, the reality of nuclear risk, and what we need to do as a society to step aside from these terrible risks once and for all. Our project is called The Urgency of Banning Nukes. Americans who are under, say, 45 or 50 years old, I guess that includes some kind of almost middle-aged Americans, but anyway, haven't had to worry much about the risk of nuclear annihilation during their adults because the issue of nuclear war fighting has been kind of on a back burner during the past 30 years, ever since the Cold War between the United States and the then Soviet Union was brought to an almost miraculously peaceful end in 1990 and 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union into its constituent parts, of which Russia is, of course, one. But now, nuclear war issues are firmly back on the table. It's a fairly scary topic to think about talk about, because the possibility of nuclear war brings a real possibility of the annihilation, not just of the whole of humankind, but also of most other forms of life on Earth as well. Nuclear winter is a real thing, and we need to understand it. However, we also have some good news to talk about in our project, because at the level of global politics, we now, since January of last year, have a worldwide treaty in place called the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the TPNW. This treaty is binding only on those nations that have signed it, which includes large numbers of nations from the global south and a handful from Europe. But sadly, none of the nine states that have nuclear weapons today have yet signed it and the two biggest and scariest nuclear arsenals in the world today by far are those controlled by Russia and Russia. I see our job as anti-war Americans as being to build a movement that's strong enough to push our government to sign onto this very important treaty, the TPNW. If nuclear annihilation happens, then it will be a much speedier form of annihilation than anything that climate change will cause. But first, we need to understand the issues very well, and that is what this Twitter space and our broader project on the urgency of banning nukes is all about. Please check out our website, www.justworldeducational.org, to learn more about the project, which will also include more Twitter spaces coming ahead every Tuesday and Saturday for the next few weeks. And please tell your friends about the project. My co-host here is our manager, Amel Zarug, and we have two very expert guests with us who are going to start to talk us through this matter of nuclear risk. Our guests are Ray McGovern and Professor Ted Postol. We also have a number of other great speakers with us today, including our Just World Ed board member, Richard, oh, Richard Falk is not with us, but Rick Sterling is. So hello, everybody. Amel, um, oh, I was going to ask you to in introduce Ray McGovern, but I guess Ray McGovern, 
maybe ha- is having a little bit of trouble signing on. I think he's running late. That's okay. I mean, it's a Saturday, whatever. Um, <laughs> okay, so then it's going to be my pleasure to introduce um, Professor Ted Postel. Um, is it okay if I call you Ted? Ah, so um, you're going to maybe need to connect your mic to uh, to Twitter. And um, you do that if you're on a phone, you do it in settings um, and go down to mic, microphone, and then allow access to Twitter. And Amel can talk you through that. So anyway, waiting for... Um, Ted Postel. Oh, actually. On his way to Armageddon. Oh, my Lord. Okay, let's see if I can make Ted Postel into a speaker. Um, Ted Postel, you need to um, accept the invitation as a speaker. Um, what do you think, Amel? Yeah, and if you're not seeing the notification, um, I wonder if if maybe you're joining from a computer rather than a phone. Um, but I just DM'd you my phone number if you'd like to text, and I'm I'm happy to walk you through it. Okay, well, you know this is a new technology for all of us. Um, yes. <laughs> so so we'll take a little bit of time, and I I promise I will not keep burst having um, Tom Lehrer on here bursting into song. Um, so, Rick Sterling, um, could you just say hi and tell us where you're talking from and tell us um, some of your concerns about nuclear weapons today? Yeah, hi, Helena and Amel. It's great to be with you today. Uh, I'm checking in. Uh, it's uh, This is my uh, first time really on uh, Twitter Spaces also, so I'm very interested to learn about this new platform. Um, and I'm, I'm talking to you from Walnut Creek, California in the Bay Area. I think this is a, an extremely uh, issue, and it's really good that Helena has uh, taken the decision to, to highlight that and to, uh, to make that a theme for uh, a series of uh, Twitter Spaces conversations. Uh, I noticed just in the last few years there have been two different blockbuster books uh, on this very topic that have come out. Um, Daniel Ellsberg's book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, uh, came out a few years ago. And he speaks about the importance of stopping launch on warning, uh, which is the um, which is where uh, we could start a chain of events uh, which uh, leads to a nuclear uh, exchange and, as Helena was saying, uh, possibly the end of civilization. The other book, which is less well-known, is From Mad to Madness, Inside Pentagon Nuclear War, which is the memoir of uh, Paul Johnstone, who is the father of Diana Johnstone, and that book was written many years ago, but it's just been published by Clarity Press, which is uh, a very good publisher. Uh, so I recommend that uh, interested people check out both of those books. So I'll, I'll leave it at, at that for now. I'm hoping that uh, 
Professor Postal uh, can get connected here, and I'm hoping that Ray can, uh, is going to be able to join us. Yeah, those books, I, I think both of them sound good. This thing about launch on warning and the doomsday machine, you know, that that was one of the themes in um, in Dr. Strangelove, which is a movie that I highly recommend that people, people watch um, because th there's a great scene in there where this, the Soviet ambassador is talking to the American president and talking about the doomsday machine and which of the countries has, has the, the more doomier one. So, okay. Um, Ted Postol, can you can you, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Amazing. That's great. Okay. Excellent. I made the mistake Thank of you. using my computer. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, like I said, we're all still learning about how to do this. So, so it's great to have you with us. It's a real honor for people who don't know who Ted Postol is. He is like, um, well, the god of telemetry and and. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, you're giving me too much credit. Why, why, don't you let Rick, why don't you let Rick continue? Because I thought he had some very good ideas, and I'll come in when you went next. Okay, okay. okay. That, that sounds good. So, Rick. Um, I, I, uh, I think uh, uh, the interesting thing about... Um, uh, Diana Johnstone's book, or but the book by her father, actually Paul H. Johnstone, is that he was intimately involved with the the planning. He was he was at the Pentagon, and of course, that, Dan, Daniel Ellsberg was working for the Rand Corporation, and he was intimately connected with the uh, Defense Department, also. So this these are these insider accounts are extremely important. Um, and I know I actually have not read uh, Paul Johnstone's book yet, but I've just uh, pulled it off the shelf. I I, I bought it um, some time ago. It it it's it was only published in 2017, so it's four or five years old uh, now. Uh, the, you know the publication, but it was actually written de decades ago, and um, it has a commentary by. Paul Johnstone's daughter, Diana Johnstone, who's a, who's a brilliant uh, international analyst uh, based in uh, based in France. So uh, this is going to be very good to look at and to analyze. And th these are the people who, if they're blowing the whistle on this, which is what they were doing, they're doing it with tremendous insight and knowledge of what's really going on. Um, do we well, have... Yes, do we I have... So does Professor Postol, you know, I mean, I, I really want to um, finish the introduction for him that I was trying to pull up because uh, Ted Postol not only, you know, has taught at MIT, Stanford and elsewhere, his expertise is in nuclear weapons systems, including submarine warfare, applications of nuclear weapons, ballistic missile defense, ballistic missiles more generally. But he has also worked in the Pentagon um, as a science and policy advisor to the chief of naval operations. So I think having Ted Postol with us in person. Um, Ted, I've been reading some of your recent articles. Um, and and you really have such a lot to say. Um, if 
I could ask one first question of you. Um, it's you say that the um, situation today may be more on a knife edge than the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, could you walk us through that a little bit? Whether it, you really, you know, why you think that? Yeah, well, let me start out by making a con I, I think Rick should have a good chance to speak because he's got some interesting things to say. But let me start out um, uh, giving you a few uh, background elements. Um, uh, just, to, just for the information of your listeners, uh, I, when I was in the Pentagon working for the Chief of Naval Operations, I was in an, in an unusual position as a civilian, uh, much like... Um, uh, um, uh, uh, some of the other people you're talking about because uh, I had access to nuclear war plans and I was involved in technical reviews of nuclear war planning activities. So I know a little bit about that. And um, uh, when I, uh, uh, Dan Ellsberg and I have talked quite extensively sharing our experiences Mine uh, was quite a lot after uh, Dan's experience, uh, later in time, uh, which, which is very good because he has a picture from earlier times and I have a picture from later times. And, and, um, uh, so, uh, and we have talked quite a bit, so um, uh, I'm, I'm quite familiar with uh, Dan's experience and his uh, knowledge, which, of course, is very solid. Um, today... Uh, we are in a in a in quite a different situation uh, than than at earlier times. Um, uh, the we we have <laughs> some interference here. Um, the um, uh, the nuclear forces of the United States are now unambiguously capable of destroying uh, all of the land based missiles in underground silos as. Uh, the Russians know this. I want to be clear. It's not just a, a speculation on the part, on my part. Uh, the Russians have a detailed estimate of what they think we can do. And that estimate has led them to the conclusion that we could destroy their entire uh, silo-based nuclear forces. I, I've talked directly uh, with... Um, uh, people like uh, General Vladimir Dvorkin, uh, uh, General Victor Yesen, who was actually uh, a commander of the Strategic Rocket Forces. Uh, um, uh, Dvorkin was head of their Strategic Analysis Institute. And um, although uh, in some cases we don't have a direct statement, uh, all of the discussion indicates that they fully understand uh, that um, their forces are not survivable against the U.S. first strike. At the same, and that was not the case earlier. I mean, we we had a lot of capability against their nuclear forces, but we did not uh, have the capability to wipe them out in a single stroke. And um, now we do. And at the same time, the Russians have had some serious problems uh, developing technologies they need for uh, a modestly capable uh, strategic early warning system. When I say modestly capable, 
I mean, a system similar to the United States, which, um, which is far from adequate, but is, is immeasurably superior uh, to what the Russians can do. For example, if the Russians launch their land-based rockets at us, we essentially know that the rockets are being launched uh, essentially within seconds or tens of seconds of the, of the ignition of the rockets. In the case of the Russians, they will probably, uh, I would say, probably not know that our forces are launched uh, until perhaps maybe 12 to 15 minutes after our rockets are launched. That is to say, that's because they cannot see the launch of the rockets from satellites in space. We so, have the ability... So, Ken, just a moment. Could you talk us, take a couple of steps back and tell us why it is that if the Russians are unable to survive an, an American nuclear strike or if the Russians don't have the early warning capability, why is that a problem for the rest of us? Well, uh, if the Russians uh, are worried that they will lose their entire land-based force, incidentally, uh, there are other forces that they would have that would, would be able to respond to us. So they have submarine forces. They have uh, bombers that may or may not be able to get off their runways. But, and they also have these underwater torpedoes, they call them Poseidons, that could uh, basically sneak into our harbors and deliver gigantic uh, nuclear weapons of gigantic yield. So it's not as if they cannot respond. But the, the, the measures that they'll use for strike capability tend to be focused on the ICBM forces. This is actually a misperception of the actual situation. But hang on, hang on. Uh, ICBM, tell us what that is. Oh, yeah, good, good. Thank you. you stop me every time I do that. Uh, an I ICBM is, is called, it's just a ballistic missile that has a 10,000 kilometer range, intercontinental range. The intercontinental range of 10,000 kilometers is not due to technology, it's due to the geography, the accidents of the geography uh, between uh, Russia and the United States. So when we, when we talk about an intercontinental ballistic missile, which is typically referred to by an acronym, ICBM, we're talking about a very large missile of one kind or another that has the keep capability to deliver nuclear warheads of 10,000 kilometers, which in this case would be from the United States to Russia or vice versa. So it's a particular type of missile. There are other missiles that could deliver nuclear weapons to both these countries that each of these countries have. And they count too. I mean, you know, the, you don't care if you're, if you're killed by a, a weapon that flies like an airplane, which is called a cruise missile or whether it's a ballistic missile which flies through space under the influence of gravity and momentum, it doesn't matter. What matters is you, you're killed, that the nuclear weapon goes off and kills you. And the Russians do have quite a bit of retaliatory capability that they have intentionally built in case the United States tries to destroy their land-based intercontinental ballistic missiles, their long-range missiles. Now, the long-range missiles have been traditionally the uh, backbone of the Russian nuclear strike forces. So they built up these other uh, types of strike forces uh, 
in response to the American, the increasing American threat to those land-based missiles. So in reality, if we were to be foolish enough to try to destroy these missiles, and we could, we could destroy those missiles, it would not save the United States from being destroyed by other missiles the Russians have, and the Russians continue to build and, and enhance uh, as they move forward. So, go ahead. Uh, Ted, I want to ask you, these kind of warheads, these kind of nuclear bombs that um, both Russia and our country, the United States, can deliver, roughly how many times um, more powerful and destructive are they than the 12 kiloton bomb that the United States dropped on Hiroshima in 1945? I mean, are we talking about something that's maybe roughly twice as big or what? Well, uh, a typical warhead, which American intelligence seems to assess about 800 kilotons uh, is, um, um, uh, is what uh, is um, typically ascribed Russian uh ICBM warhead. We don't. We don't really know what the yield is. It could be twice that. It could be half that. So but, I have yeah. been. I have been to Hiroshima. You know where the United States um, launched a, a nuclear warhead of twelve kilotons, and they right. had it detonate. I think about six hundred feet above ground level, and it was a test really, because they didn't know the effects. But the effects, as anybody who's been to Hiroshima or read about Hiroshima, the effects of that one 12 kiloton bomb were devastating throughout of this large industrial city to the extent yeah. that there was just that one structure that has a sort of dome on the top that was left. Yes. And the radiation effects continued. I mean, I met... This was, I want to say, in the year 2000 or maybe 2004, I can't remember. But I met some of the aging survivors of that nuclear weapon, um, themselves Hibakusha. And, I mean, just to hear the stories of destruction of a 12-kiloton weapon was, was devastating. And to think, you know, that, that that was like something the United States did just to end the war quickly or whatever they they also wanted to demonstrate that they had this thing because they were already kind of gearing up for a, um, a contest against the then Soviet Union. But I just want to come back. That was about 12 kilotons. So what yeah. you're talking about is each one being about 800 kilotons. Yeah, I, I was uh, brought to Japan by these uh, NHK for a, a, a filming on this, and they brought me into the actual building. Uh, that that you're you're talking about, and right. it, had, it was it was covered with uh, copper sheet metal. The dome was a copper sheet metal dome, and when you in that building and you look up, of course, you see nothing but skeletal bars that were the copper pieces were laid on. And of course, what happened? I should say it's not to a non-specialist. Of course, I understood this because of who I am, but what my background. When the nuclear weapon was detonated, it created a pulse of light that was so intense that the sheet metal on the copper, the copper just melted and fell into the, into the center of the building. And then 
afterwards, the shock wave, which travels more slowly than the light, hit the building and it hit the building from, it was over the building. So the direction of the pressure wave uh, was, uh, did not knock down the walls because the direction of the pressure wave was straight down. So it's like standing on a Coke can. If you step on the Coke can from the side, it'll be crushed, but you can even stand on it because its strength in the vertical direction is very good. And uh, that's why the building looks the way it does. It was just simply, simply evaporated, not quite evaporated, melted. It, it's, it's copper dome was literally melted and then blown off uh, by the sh following shockwave. So it was a pretty uh, extreme physical environment when that weapon went off. The, uh, the range at which fires were set um, by the uh, detonation that was over the building was a little bit over one mile, maybe one and a quarter mile uh, uh, from the detonation point. So uh, that meant that about three and a half to four miles of the city were subjected to a, a, a pulse of light that was so intense that it set um, fire to buildings. And to, uh, ending on the range, uh, it set fire to uh, curtains and uh, uh, people, uh, people with clothing on them, uh, it set fire to their clothing and burned patterns, the patterns of their clothing into their skin. It was really a, a, a horrifying uh, example of what a, a nuclear weapon could do. And basically the city was destroyed by blast and heat. And in fact, the heat was a more effective means for destroying the city this is what people generally don't understand, than, um, uh, than what you would um, have uh, uh, from blast. The reason is the temperature of the weapon is so large. Nuclear weapon generates initially uh, maybe a million degrees Kelvin temperature on, the, on its exterior uh, for a very short time, but then it cools. And that's a very high temperature, and a lot of light and heat radiates from it. So let's say it's about four miles um, of area uh, just destroyed by the effects of fire by uh, a 12 kiloton nuclear weapon. So, so um, we're talking about Hiroshima now, just for people. Hiroshima, right. This, uh, so let's. A very small weapon by. Today. A very small weapon. So let's take a single 800 kiloton nuclear weapon uh, from. Uh, uh, from a, a, a Russian uh, ICBM. An 800 kiloton weapon uh, should set fires maybe to a range of, of up to five or six miles. It depends on some variables. So that means um, uh, it, it could set an area of, seven, say, 75 miles square, uh, square miles on fire. And the other... Uh, the the twelve and a half weapon uh, set an area of roughly four miles, uh, uh, four square miles on fire. So it means that um, uh, maybe twenty times, eighteen, seventeen times. So one of these weapons, uh, one of the bigger weapons from an ICBM, is about uh, let, let's for the sake of simplicity say twenty times. Uh, 20 times the number uh, of uh, of um, I, uh, Hiroshima 
sized uh, weapons. Now, uh, if you if you carry five, let's say you carry ten warheads on an ICBM, they're not all loaded to full level. That means a single a single Russian ICBM uh, can carry uh, the equivalent of the destructive capability of two hundred um, Hiroshima. Uh, uh, you know, uh, nuclear weapons. And if you say there are 300 of these weapons, all rounded, so it's it's the number I'm coming up with is larger, but 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 meaningfully so. I'm just trying to give you a sense of scale. Um, so so we're talking 5,000 or, or four to 6,000 uh, Hiroshima equivalents uh, on the Russian land-based ICBMs. So that's just the ICBMs. That's not the other weapons. Some of these other weapons have tremendously more capability. For example, the underwater uh, nuclear underwater Poseidon uh, submarine. It's a robot submarine. It could carry a 100 megaton warhead. A one hundred megaton. A megaton is what? It's million tons. A million tons equivalent of TNT. Got it. But but this is misleading because TNT never reaches a temperature above five thousand degrees Kelvin when it explodes. So um, the nuclear weapon reaches, in the case of the larger weapons, the interior of the weapon reaches are close to 100 million degrees Kelvin. That temperature leads to a very, very, very intense fireball, uh, you know, a, a region of air that's a bubble in the atmosphere that's hotter than the surface of the sun when it all expands out. And that fireball radiates this light onto the terrain around the nuclear detonation and causes all kinds of horrific uh, fire effects, burning people up, setting fires at great range. So, for example, I'm sorry. You were... Well, I, I was about to say, you know, we've recently been re-watching the movie The Day After that yes. produced brilliantly in October of 1983. Um, that was a really important sort of um, dramatization of what might happen if Russian missiles came in. So they set it in Lawrence, Kansas, yes. which place like that has a university. I've been there. It's a nice sort of mid-sized American city, small city maybe. Um, and then there are actually, I think, nuclear missile silos nearby in Kansas. I'm not entirely yes. sure, but most of the United States intercontinental missile silos are sort of in the middle of the country. So if a yeah, Russian comes countries. in and hits one of those missile silos, and they're called silos, though they go down into the ground. Yes. Uh, but, but it would also have effect on nearby places like the city of Lawrence, Kansas. I mean, it's not if, if we send an ICBM against Russia's hardened missile silos inside, you know, in the interior of Russia, wherever they are, the effects are not going to just be against the silos, right? I mean, they're, they're also... Yeah, the, radio, the radioactive more. fallout, if you think of Lawrence, Kansas, just for the sake of uh, 
uh, illustrative discussion. Um, the, um, the the radiation that was depicted in that uh, dramatization did not necessarily have to come from this uh, the ICBM attacks in Kansas. It could have come from uh, Montana. In other words, there's enough radiation produced in the attacks against the silo, the ICBMs in Montana, that the prevailing winds from the west to the east could have carried the lethal fallout to Lawrence, Kansas, that was depicted, the consequences of which that were depicted in that um, uh, in, in, in the film. So, uh, so the scale at which fallout can be lethal, the distances over which it can reach in a large attack like the one that was, uh, you know, dramatized in in the film the day after, uh, could easily reach Washington. You know, when we uh, when we were doing calculations, my colleagues and I did calculations on this a few, uh, many years ago. Frank von Heppel, who you probably know of, and um, and um, you know, we found that um, uh, att the the attacks that were on uh, uh, silos in the Midwest could potentially drop lethal fallout on Washington, D.C. It depended on the wind direction. So it was an accident of the weather. So it wasn't guaranteed. But um, the, the the range of, of lethal fallout from one of these mass attacks is enormous. It's, it's you know, continental scale. So um, the fallout is a very, very uh, serious, uh, I'll, I'll call it secondary, but you understand this is this is the ultimate understatement. Um, the um, uh, it's 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 one of those other consequences of nuclear explosions, just as the fires. People focus on the explosive shockwave, but that's incorrect. It's understandably incorrect because people don't have experience with nuclear weapons, fortunately. But um, the flash from the nuclear weapon over a city is far more destructive than the blast wave, even though the blast wave is tremendously destructive because the, 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 the flash will set fires at much greater range than the blast will cause heavy damage. But the fire that starts will be a mass fire that looks like the fires that the Americans started over Japan when we burnt down Tokyo, for example. Very high winds generated by the fire. Uh, the fire causes buoyantly rising hot air. Uh, it, it causes uh, what I called it in, a, in an article I wrote quite a few years ago. I called it a hurricane of fire. It was a hurricane force winds. Uh, the air temperature was above the boiling point of water in the fire zone. And fire brands were, of course, being pulled off by the very high winds. And anybody who was out in the street was literally incinerated. This was not a nuclear fire. This was a mass fire started by incendiary raids. The nuclear fire would be no different. And it would be over a vaster area, though. That's all. So there's, there's actually, sorry, there, there's actually a great um, movie, a short movie of nine minutes that the International Committee for the Red Cross has produced. It's an animated movie um, called What If We Nuke a City? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. Or I have not seen it. 
maybe well it it depicts exactly what you've been talking about um and it shows the effect of just a single nuclear bomb dropping on a a mid-sized city well and i'd be pleased to, i'd be pleased to see it because it would mean that the the article that i wrote for the national academy of medicine in uh, must be 1983 or 4 called uh fatalities uh, from nuclear uh, attacks on cities uh, uh, it was the lead it was the lead presentation when i was in washington uh, i could put up you know i could send you a url for it uh, and people who have read it find it very illuminating but hopefully these people read it and put it into a film which is far more effective yeah so i would well, like to see that film um i don't know if amel can actually uh, pull it up um and, and put it into the uh, into the chat here, or however one does this thing in yeah, yeah. Twitter Spaces. But it is it's on our website, which is www.justworldeducational.org. Yeah, I'll take a look at it. Yes, Thank and um, they've done a nice job. You know, I think the, their setup is that you know, with people playing violent video games these days having kind of having a nuclear war is actually like part of some video games which is a terrifying thought that young people are actually being socialized in this way to think that nuclear war is just a game or is yeah. you know, thinkable or whatever um and so the international committee of the red cross worked with a german anime animation company to make a sort of animated movie this is what nuclear war actually is and i think it, it was a great thing to do although and and we even use some of their some of their visuals um so yeah I, I urge everybody to look at that my my question at this point like if you and all the specialists and everybody else knows that this whole damn thing is so horrific and so destructive and really almost unthinkable I mean, it's unthinkable that one would use these weapons. It's unthinkable that one would threaten to use these weapons. So why do we continue having them, building them, using my taxpayer dollars to do so? Well, I think that's, uh, that's, uh, that gets us into the realm of politics, which uh, I, I, I'm happy to talk about. I'm not as big an expert as some other people like uh, Professor Falk. But... Um, uh, the reason uh, people build nuclear weapons, there, there are many reasons. First of all, uh, when we, when the United States first had nuclear weapons, <clears throat> when we first be they first became available to us and nobody else had them, this was only a very short period of time, uh, people had the idea that nobody else could get them. Americans had the idea nobody else could get them. And we could effectively, uh, uh, you know, uh, coerce the world to do things we wanted to do. I won't say rule the world, but coerce any country in the world with, with our nuclear capabilities. Now, uh, it became obvious after, after a relatively short time that you can't coerce a nation. You know, there are all kinds of reasons you might want to coerce a nation, and every one of them don't justify destroying the nation. You know, and uh, as in order to coerce them, so people began to realize 
that conventional military forces were also extremely important. But but there was a time, uh, really almost up to 1960, where the American mentality was that uh, you, if you had enough nuclear weapons, you can get any country in the world to do anything you wanted. Because, uh, but of course, by 1949, the Russians had demonstrated the ability to build nuclear weapons. And by 1952 or 53, both the United States and Russians had hydrogen bombs, thermonuclear weapons. The For the purpose of your audience, the difference between an atomic weapon and a thermonuclear weapon is that a thermonuclear weapon can be of enormous, unlimited yield. The, uh, so, uh, in other words, it would be very hard to build an 800 kiloton or near one megaton warhead that was a pure atomic weapon, but a thermonuclear weapon, it's no problem at all. And you can build them even much larger. So, so once the uh, ability uh, to build thermonuclear weapons was available to both Russia uh, and the United States, the political forces for building large arsenals to deter each other from attacking the other, for each one, each country wanted to deter the other from attacking, um, was a political judgment. Uh, just as the French uh, and the um, Chinese uh, and the British also judged. The British wanted to be a nuclear weapon state so that nobody could uh, uh, could be an independent threat to anybody who bothered them. Uh, the United States tried to get them to not build nuclear weapons, tried to offer them the American protection. But the old question comes up if you're British, would the United States risk being annihilated by Russia if Russia or the Soviet Union at that time destroyed Britain? In other words, would we be willing to retaliate against the Soviet Union and thereby uh, have our nation destroyed in, in a second response from the Soviet Union? So the, the British decided they wanted their own weapons. They didn't trust that another country would be willing to annihilate itself to protect them. The French, of course, also made similar decisions. The Chinese, of course, were facing the United States, who was constantly rattling a nuclear saber. And they decided, I don't think it's good. I don't want to look like I think it's good. But, but understandably... They decided that in order to get out from under these constant threats of being attacked with nuclear weapons from the U.S., that they needed to have a nuclear weapon to make it clear that if, if someone tried that against them, particularly the United States, they would kill as many Americans as they could, you know, with, with retaliation. So all of these decisions were made based on political judgments. It was a human factor, which is also a, a very big factor in what could lead to a to a, a global nuclear war. There are technical factors, which you know, which I've been talking about, but there are human factors, and the human factors drive people to make decisions that, from a broader perspective appear to be very unwise and they are unwise but it's not just the, you know it's not just the threat of use someone use nuclear weapons against you 
It's the fact that they might try to politically coerce you without using nuclear weapons, but by threatening, they will use nuclear weapons against you. That is a big factor that causes political leadership in many countries to decide to build nuclear weapons. So, so um, I, I think I can understand that part of it. And there's also, of course, the military industrial complex part of it, which if we ever get Ray McGovern on here, I'm sure he would love to talk about what he calls the Mickey mat, which is the military industrial some, something thing, yeah. like really bad actors who take our, our tax dollars and, and build weapons systems. But um, I see that uh, my colleague, Amel, um, is, she's still working with Ray to see about getting him onto the conversation. But she said, um, one of the questions I had wanted to ask was if there is a way of discussing this issue in a manner that doesn't just compound a feeling of hopelessness and despair, especially for a generation that is already overwhelmed by the climate crisis by forever wars and so on and so forth. So I think that's that's a great uh, a great question, Amel. And I hope sometime you'll be able to come on and ask it and ask other questions. But what would you say, Ted Stoll, um, about you know how we talk about this to the younger generation that is already feeling overwhelmed with a bunch of stuff? Well, I I, I, I wish I could be optimistic. Uh, I um, you know I spent my whole career working on this and. Uh, you cannot, uh, my joke with friends is that intelligence is limited, but it has no limits. And, uh, and then there's the problem of the immediacy uh, of a country being, believing it's under threat. It may or may not be under threat. I mean, this war in Ukraine, uh, this terrible war, is partly driven by Russian leadership believing it's under threat. It's been under threat. And, uh, and, uh, some truth to that, unfortunately, but that's another discussion. Uh, but um, political leaders do not want to be accused of not doing what they need to do to defend their country. It doesn't matter wh whether you're Mao Zedong or, or Woodrow Wilson or whoever else. Uh, the political system in all countries is oriented toward um, driving political leaders to do things that they think they need to do in order to remain in power. And the last thing you want is to be Xi Jinping and be accused of undermining China's ability to defend itself. However, you know, whatever you do. So, so if we if we take a pause there just a moment, the I mean the Chinese, as I understand it, have never gotten into arms races in the way that the Russians and, and the Americans have. So that already gives us one kind of another data point. Another, well, I think, and, I think another, that's changing. Another data point that I think is really important to mention in a response to Amel's question is, is this treaty on the prohibition of nuclear war. I mean, that has grown up, you know, pushed by countries of the global south and by a few European countries at a time that Americans weren't paying attention to this matter at all. I mean, we were all worried about, to some extent, climate change and to some extent our for forever wars and to some extent, you know, the whole kind of political problems in 
outside this country. But we haven't been paying attention to the TPNW, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear War. How do, how do we actually um, increase the awareness of Americans of all ages to this well, incredible opportunity? I, I think this treaty is extraordinarily important. Uh, I'm not sure that its influence has yet been felt in the uh, in, in, in the uh, northern hemisphere uh, major players, you know, the major nations. But I think that it is important to keep pushing on it and continuing to embarrass uh, the major nations uh, to uh, to what this treaty is asking for, uh, because. The treaty is really based on a very good and sound way to guarantee or to increase the chances that the human race is going to make it uh, for another few hundred years. I'm not sure we'll make it for the next few decades, the way things are going. But um, the um, so that's a very good political mechanism. And one way that American citizens can help um, push uh, the recognition of the value of this treaty into uh, 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 more visibility in the United States and thereby increase the push to uh, respond to its demands is to do something about the, the uh, political leadership uh, in our country. I don't know how easy that's going to be, be to do. Uh, I was a fan of Joe Biden. I, I, I know I, I don't know Joe Biden personally, but I know I met with him a few times. Uh, I I thought he was a very sensible person uh, when I've dealt with him. The advisors he has chosen for his uh, national security staff are a danger to the security of the United States. They're a danger. Uh, these guys are hell-bent on trying to push other countries to the edge. They have their own bizarre worldview that the United States can bully anybody to do anything it wants. That's not correct. The world is now uh, a multipolar world, even though the United States may be the biggest player. As the world modernizes and technology and economic wealth uh, propagates around the world, which is happening, it's the only moral outcome if you talk about keeping all these, you know, this rest of the world from starving to death and dying of minor illnesses. As this technology, science, and economic wealth propagates, the United States will inevitably become a less dominant player. That is what's going on right now. And, of course, the rise of China, which is... Um, I think there's a good chance China in the next 20 or 30 years will be our absolute peer and may well uh, may well surpass us. I, I can't be sure of that, but they will be a peer, I think, very likely, and um, militarily as well as economically. I think we have to have an attitude that allows us to learn how to live with other great powers, and we don't, you know. If you look at all the rhetoric coming out of Washington, it's how are we going to confront China? How are we going to contain China? How are we going to limit China's uh, development? It's a little late for that. If you want to be very cynical 
the time to have stopped China. I, I'm a, I think it's a moral outrage to talk about suppressing a country's development to uh, so that you can remain the uh, supreme military commander. That's my own reaction as a human being looking at the ethics of it. But if you want to be a cold, you know, analytical political scientist who says the objective of the United States is to remain the sole hegemon in the world, then we've missed our opportunity. 30 years ago, we should have been doing everything we can uh, to suppress China's economic development. I'm, I, I don't think we should have done that, but I'm just saying, if you believe that that's the right answer, that's what we should have been done. There's no suppressing China at this point. They yeah. are now, I'm sorry. I, I mean, I've, uh, I wrote a little book in 2008 about you know the need for a new kind of foreign policy and and i was you know underlining there that the united states population is five percent of humankind so yeah. like it's just the the epitome of of hubris of arrogance to think that five percent of humankind forever should be top of the heap i mean it's more it's more than hubris it's immoral <laughs> right I, you know, I'll be honest with you. I, you know, I worked in the Pentagon and, you know, I'm a, you know, I know a lot about the system. It's immoral to do that to the rest of the world. It's just immoral. So um, I have been like in touch with these people here in the United States who are pressing for the, the United States to join the TPNW, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear War. There's a wonderful organization called nuclearban.us that I hope everybody here can uh, go to their website, nuclearban.us. And they gave us the news um, recently that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the rep U.S. representative from New York, um, has joined a list of co-sponsors of a bill to abolish all nuclear weapons and use the money to address climate change. So that's great. I mean, AOC is the 14th um, member of the House of Representatives to sign on to this bill. Um, so it's not that there's no political momentum, but it's just really very, very small. And, and you know, we have to do what we can to, to build up the, the nuclear the, the popular momentum to the stage that it was. For example, 40 years ago, in 1982, when there were millions of people in the streets. Um, yeah, I remember. I was in the Pentagon then, so I remember very well. <laughs> so, so, so did that popular movement have an effect? In it definitely did. It definitely did, but it also had a negative downside. So, for example... I was working with the uh, chief of naval operations at that time, Jim Watkins. And Watkins was, you know, like many people in high-level positions, uh, has it, had his own quirks. He was extremely intelligent, really retained anything you told him. Very, very smart. But he had very poor judgment in my, in my personal view. And uh, he was a Catholic and a devout Catholic. And the Catholic, uh, the, the bishop's letter on the morality of nuclear war had had a deep effect on him. So, so he, you know, this was, you would think, good. I mean, right? A, a moral man and a, and, you know, a man who's moral and religious and takes his religion seriously in a very high level military job 
uh, being thinking about the consequences of nuclear war. And of course, the uh, the uh, the day after out this film, I remember this uh, uh, guy who was in charge of my division, uh, he was a two-star admiral, being so shocked by it. <laughs> I remember telling him, "What do you think we're doing here, delivering pizzas?" You know, <laughs> and uh, you know, because he had no idea what he was doing, uh, even though he's in charge of a you know of the you know was, my my division was uh, theater and strategic nuclear weapons division in the office of the chief of naval operations and here the two-star admiral doesn't know what he's is i wasn't shocked by the day after i i mean i was applauding that it dramatized something that i could not succeed in in, in dramatizing to other people because i was very concerned about the situation so i wasn't angry about it i but you know even the people who were doing this did not know what they were doing that's an that's an interesting lesson that i think people should take away from this conversation so that's, the chief of i'm sorry well no that's very very scary um i just want yeah. to see if either amel or rick sterling would well, jump yeah, let me just finish this because yeah. it's an important insight here and then i'll stop but the chief of naval operations had this great moral interest and concern so what did he do without adequate information had a conversation uh I won't go into the details because it gets having a conversation with uh, a completely biased, dishonest person, never even consulting me, even though I was briefing him regularly. He went to President Reagan and pushed Reagan to start the Strategic Defense Initiative. Okay, you want to talk about disasters? Oh, wow. Why, what, why did he do that? Because he was shallow. He he was a man who had a moral, you know, the whole you know, the old the old story, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. There was no question in my mind that he thought he was doing a good thing. He thought he was being a moral person. But he didn't he, he didn't know what he was doing. And the last time I saw him, I was briefing this guy regularly. The last time I saw him, I gave him a briefing. That showed him consequences of his advocacy. And halfway through the briefing, he got up and he walked room. I never got into the briefing room again. Interesting. Okay. Wow. Um, All right. That's a story that people ought to keep in mind when you bring someone who hasn't thought it through properly, the level of concern where they actually take an action. So I just want to have one little comeback there. Uh, sure. That sounds like that sounds like Ronald Reagan himself, who both introduced, as you you know described it, the the Strategic Defense Initiative, Star Wars, and he ta started talking to to the Soviets about um, intermediate nuclear force treaty and other things. So so he he had the two reactions, right? Yes, he did. He had the wrong reaction initially and the right reaction after. But, but the problem there was, and this is an interesting way, story to think about, the problem there is that the American military uh, industrial complex responded 200% behind him when he talked about the Strategic Defense Initiative, although it was a total fiction. I want to underscore this. There's not a shred of scientific foundation 
that would lead you to believe that this idea had any possibility of ever working. Okay, that's how bad an idea it was. Yet the whole system went into full gear towards doing this. When he tried to negotiate the removal of all nuclear weapons with Gorbachev, the system reacted against it and he got nowhere. So that tells you that there's a lot of bureaucratic inertia. And the bureaucratic inertia is only pointed in one direction. Oh, my goodness. So, um, I'm then, sorry. I don't mean to be so negative. but No, I mean, we need to build up the, the pressure outside, obviously. Yes, in the streets, absolutely. In, in the congressional district. So, Amel or Rick, I'd love for you, you guys to join in as well. Yeah, um, I'd actually really like it if, if Ted could speak to the consequences of, of nuclear testing. And that I hope you'll forgive me if this is something you addressed earlier, but I mean, I can't imagine that nuclear arms could be detonated anywhere without major consequences for, for people in the environment. Well, I think um, uh, there's no longer any testing either underground or in the atmosphere. I don't know how long that's going to last because people are lobbying for it. But um, it's certainly true that um, the nuclear testing that was going on when it was active was uh, producing radioactive fallout. Uh, the radioactive fallout uh, was um, has many radioactive isotopes. The radioactive isotope of primary concern because it remains radioactive for a reasonable period of time, was strontium-90. Strontium-90 chemically um, is chemically very similar to calcium. So children were picking it up. Uh, it was getting into the bones of children. And actually, the mothers of the world uh, were, were a major force in stopping... Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, the atmospheric testing. I, I, I think, uh, you know, I've always marveled at the, the um, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, a, as I joke with my wife, I, I call her a double alpha female and I'm just a delta male. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm always amazed as a man looking at the women around me, including my mother. And, you know, mothers are, just unbelievable in terms of their commitment to their children. It's just, it's just hard to understand. I mean, it's a wonderful thing, but it's hard to understand how committed a woman, you know, the, the, the natural commitment that women have to their children. And this is what motivated. This is what led to um, the, um, uh, you know, the the, 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 the uh, atmospheric test ban treaty. The women of the world did it. I, you know, I take my hat off to them. And uh, so um, the uh, uh, atmospheric testing uh, was a real problem, which is why they went underground, where it was still a problem, of course, because uh, nuclear weapons development was continuing. Uh, but uh, I think at this point, it's the legacy of the testing that, you know, is relatively small. I say relatively, you know, if you're one of the people who developed cancer who would not otherwise have developed cancer uh, is more for you. But in terms of the over the global population, it's gone to a very low, to, to a relatively low level. I, again, I, I don't want to uh, look like I'm trying to minimize it. I'm just saying from the point of view 
of a public health problem, it's uh, it's it's much lower than other things we worry about. But you know, it's it was going on. But I think the lesson to learn is that the women, the mothers of the world, were the ones who stopped it. It wasn't the political activists, or they became political activists. But, but uh, you know, women are a powerful force, and I applaud more and more women being in politics because they do have a different view of the world. And uh, I don't know how many times my wife has pulled me up short to my benefit. You know, it's uh, really good to have people who have entirely different ways of interacting with the world and views of the world. And, um, you know, I, I've always been a fan of women. And, uh, um, no, I mean it. It sounds strange, but I had a very loving mother who was extremely intelligent and who was totally uneducated. And she taught me, I mean, by her example, she taught me to have a great respect and admiration for women. And I'm proud to say that I've always felt that way through my life. And I think that politically, they were a real force. And they still are. And they're a growing force now. Well, it, it's true in England, they, uh, you know, they, the women of Greenham Common were a huge anti-nuclear um, force. Um, Rick or Amel, um, do you want to ask some more questions? Uh, yes, I'll, I'll comment. Uh, thanks for uh, telling us about that uh, that movie, um, uh, the uh, What If We Nuke a City. I, I looked at YouTube and it's had actually had 24 and a half million views. Um, so I'm looking forward to um, looking at that right after we uh, we finish today. But I wonder if um, uh, Professor Postal could talk about the um, the hypersonic missiles that uh, Russia has developed, which I believe are um, it, it Russia's ahead of the U.S. in that area. And then also, if it's possible to talk about why the U.S. has w been withdrawing from treaty after very important treaties, uh, you know, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the Open Skies Treaty. What, what's behind the U.S. withdrawing from those uh, treaties? Well, let me let me start with the treaty question, because I think that's far more important, if, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, uh, the United States is a completely untrustworthy rogue nation with regard to abiding by treaties it signs. And anybody, I don't care who you think you are, whether you think you're a hard-nosed conservative, whatever that is, or, or you know, headed uh, liberal or whatever that is, all these name-calling uh, approaches that we have, which is really counterproductive, no matter what your general view of uh, what the direct what direction we should take nationally the last country in the world major power in the world to talk about diplomacy is the united states you can't trust us to do anything and anybody who thinks that's a minor issue needs to have needs to get an education in how countries view a state that can't be relied upon we talk about all these other countries not abiding by treaties well, the, ones, the, the country that I can see that is absolutely and unambiguously not abiding by treaties, you name the treaty, it's the United States. So, uh, so I think that's a tremendous problem. I, I can't underscore how big a problem this is. 
because when Joe Biden talks about diplomacy, although he's not doing anything in that direction, but talk is cheap, um, who would believe that anything diplomatic, any diplomatic arrangement the United States makes will be followed by the United States a year later or a few years later? We just do whatever we want and we make up all kinds of nonsense arguments why we shouldn't do it. You know, and uh, um, even, I mean, let me just give you an example of something that annoys me, but it's not the biggest example. Um, we have this Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which uh, Trump unwisely pulled out of. We were in violation of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, at least in 2009. At least in 2009. Because we deployed this uh, 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 the sea-based Aegis uh, missile, Aegis uh, sea-based missile defense system, and besides being the worst decision for a set of reasons that could be another discussion, the worst decision we could possibly have made, as bad and certainly as bad in its international consequences as as uh, withdrawing from the ABM treaty. So this is a democratic. This is the nightmare created by a Democrat. But, but uh, President Obama did that. Obama, yeah, Obama. And uh, people like Mike McFaul, who you can always hear yelling, uh, warmongering from Stanford, uh, this guy who never has a competent thing to say. It's incredible to me that this guy is, he just fits, you know, he, he must be under contract to Lockheed or something. But, um, uh, you know, in, in 2009, the Aegis had this this space system had a variant that was supposed to go on land. They called it the the Aegis Ashore, onshore. And the installations were capable of launching land-based cruise missiles in violation of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty from the first second they were operating. From the first second they were operating. They were literal of launching uh, nu nuclear armed cruise missiles against Russia. The Russians brought this up in 2009. We ignored it. We just puffed ourselves up and claimed that it wasn't true. I wrote an article just uh, you know, a few years ago after, when the INF occurred. I was so angry. I wrote a very detailed article explaining. You can find it in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists explaining in very great detail why this was true. So at the same, at the time, uh, I was um, in uh, California. I'm lucky enough, my, uh, my wife uh, uh, brought, bought us a home in Palo Alto when, we were there, when I was there on, at Stanford. And um, my wife is the business person, and she has made all of her financial wealth. Uh, so uh, I was at... I was at a meeting at Stanford, and this guy, Colin Cald, who's he's the, I think, the Deputy Secretary of Defense for something or other, uh, he was the co-director of the Stanford Center. So they put this non-scholar who's a, a, political, um, uh, a, 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 a political hack as a co-director of their supposedly scholarly center in as a co-director and he attacks me in public for this article i wrote because i know nothing let me tell you this guy 
this guy called, he wouldn't know a cruise missile from a ballistic missile from a nuclear reactor, as far as I can see. He knows nothing. I've seen him operate. But he's arrogant. He He's rude. Uh, he's a name caller. He's just exactly what Biden claims he doesn't want in his cabinet. Well, he's not in the cabinet, but he's um, a very high-level job in the Pentagon. And all of these guys that surround Biden are of the same character. They know the answers. They don't give a damn about facts or science. In fact, if you look at the, the science appointees of, of Biden, they're, they're a joke. They have no experience. They, they, some of them are not even close to scientists. And, uh, you know, so he put these people in positions. And, uh, you know, I'm going th- to say something that's politically incorrect, but I want to be clear. I know, I, would, I know it's considered politically incorrect. He has put some women in these jobs, and I'm for women in, in the government. I'm for it. But these were unqualified, totally unqualified. He could have found qualified people, but they were politically the right, you know, he could get them to do what he wanted. And he put them in jobs that they were totally unqualified for. And this is the kind of political leadership that we don't need. We need to have more diversity. There's no question we need more diversity. And it's also no question that the talent is there. So we can find the talent to have the the, the diversity and at the same time have competence. But that's not what was what's happening, what happened in the Biden administration. So I think it's a very bad situation. I, I'm really unhappy. And I know it's going to come back at me for having said what I just said. But I think it needs to be said and brought up for discussion because, you know, people should be more aware of this, that competence matters. And it, it, competence is not an argument for not having diversity. There are pretty, plenty of competent people that would allow you to have the diversity people want. But just bringing someone, if they meet some check mark that superficially looks like it's improving diversity uh, is not a good way to go, in my view. You, you, I'm sorry, I, I probably have offended some of your people, but I, I do feel that that's something that needs to be thought about and debated. Uh, the second question, what was that? I'm sorry. Uh, uh, <clears throat> about the uh, Russian hyper, hypersonic missiles. Uh, these hypersonic vehicles are just new names for old things. All it means is that uh, is that the, the weapon travels at a speed of greater than Mach 5. Mach 5 is uh, is about one and a half uh, 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 kilometers per second. Um, uh, an anti-aircraft missile travels at Mach 5 when it burns out, typically a very capable anti-aircraft missile. Um, nothing new about uh, Mach 5 plus missiles. Um, there are these missiles that can maneuver. That's probably what you're thinking of. And some of them can be. Some of them fly like very fast uh, air-breathing missiles, uh, like airplanes, but at hypersonic speeds over five. And and some of them uh, are launched by ballistic missiles. Totally different kind of vehicle, and can skip into the atmosphere and change their direction. The missiles change the problem. Uh, of of nuclear attack or, or even conventional attack beyond what already exists. There's just a small number of missiles that have no specified meaning 
relative to the capabilities that already exist. This is just an argument, a new name for, for a weapon that basically exists in one form or other, but slightly modified, for the contractors to argue that we need to respond in kind. It's just a, it's just a contractor argument to build a new kind of weapon that adds nothing to our already tremendous strike capability and learn nothing to the Russians' already tremendous uh, strike capabilities. It's, it's a fiction. And it's a fiction that's very beneficial to American defense contractors because, after all, they have it, so we need to have it. Right. So anytime, yeah, so you rename some weapon uh, and you say, oh, this is a new weapon that, uh, you know, Weapons yeah. that with, with the three hundred. Our own. It's it's. It, you're right to say that there is a sort of problem of toxic masculinity here. That if they, yeah, if there they is hypersonics, then we have to have it, and we have to have it bigger and better. Um, right, right. Amel, do you have any more questions um, at this point, or should we start wrapping up? Um, no, no more questions for me. Um, I, I just really want to thank. Professor Postal for, for this conversation. I mean, it, it's been so, so informative. Well, I thank you. I hope I didn't offend anybody with some of the harsh statements I made. No, I don't but think I, so. I, I, I think we need to have a discussion on this because if we have discussion, I think there's going to be very little dissent because as once we understand what the other side is taught, what, what other views uh, that make sense, of course, it doesn't mean they... Uh, you know, we we can agree on quite a bit. Well, we we certainly need to do a whole lot more talking about nuclear war. I think um, for sure. I really want to thank you, um, Professor Ted Postol, for coming and giving us so much of your expertise. It's just been great. So this is this is the first Twitter space that we've done that we've ever done in public, and yeah. a few glitches. But you've been great, and. Um, I'm sorry we never quite got Ray McGovern on here, but we're going to have a whole yeah. series of these um, Twitter spaces running on yes. Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays, and but not at 11 a.m. Eastern, which is what we did today, because people on the West Coast, um, for some Still. reason, they, they did not want to get up at uh, 8 a.m. on a Saturday. Can't imagine why not. Um, yes. Amel and Rick, thanks for being with us from the West Coast. That's great. <laughs> but um, so we're, we're going to do it at noon next Saturday, starting at noon. Um, I really want people to come and visit our um, website, www.justworldeducational.org. If you go there, you'll find lots of resources that we're starting to pull together in this project that we have called The Urgency of Banning Nukes. And one of the reasons we're doing it this month is because in the middle of June, I think it's like June the 16th to the 22nd, um, there are going to be a series of meetings in Vienna, Austria, around the first meeting of states, parties of this treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons. So, so we want to sort of build up a, a huge reserve of resources on nuclear war that we, we're putting together on our website, www.justworldeducational.org, where you will also find... Um, 
all the all the records of the project we did on the Ukraine crisis back in March and April, which are also still very valuable. They're there on our website as well. And guess what else you'll find on our website is a button for you to donate. Um, so you can help to support our work, all of which is um, offered free of charge to the public. And I think it has really been a fabulous education to have you with us, um, Professor Ted Postol, to, to launch this off. And we'll try to get uh, Ray McGovern to come on Tuesday. And we have a bunch of other people um, Big thanks to you. Big thanks to our board member, Rick Sterling, for being here and to our project manager, Amel Zaroug. This is going to be, it is being recorded. So we will put the whole recording and a transcript onto our website and want to thank everybody um, who's been here as listeners and speakers and my co-host, Amel Zaroug. And hope you all come back and bring your friends on Tuesday at Southeastern.